You're listening to the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to I Think You're Interesting. I'm Todd Vanderwerf, the I and I Think You're Interesting. I'm really excited to have this episode for you this week because we are talking with one Ken Burns and his co-director Lynn Novick who are behind, I, I guess, sort of the TV event of the fall. This is kind of by default because it's a bad fall for new TV, but their movie, The Vietnam War, is a staggering documentary. It's a tremendous achievement. It's it's all, almost instantly one of the four or five best things that Burns has ever done, and he's made a lot of films. If you look at his filmography, it's extensive and touches on all sorts of things. It's sort of the height of his approach to doing history as, I guess I'd say, a kaleidoscope of, of human voices at the center of it, rather than taking a top-down view, but sort of taking a bottom-up view. At one point, Burns and Novick are balancing something like five or six different perspectives on the war, where you have the South Vietnamese Army, the North Vietnamese Army, you have governments for both of those sides, you have the United States soldiers, you have the United States government, and then you have the anti-war movement. So you have that, and then also families of soldiers who are waiting for their loved ones to come home, or have learned that their loved ones have died and are sort of skewing toward the anti-war movement. It's this tremendous portrait of a world that I think a lot of us don't always think about or know, a world that sort of America has tried to stop thinking about in a lot of ways. And so I'm really excited to have them here to talk about the movie and also to talk about, you know, some of the great things that have happened in both of their careers. We did record this week's episode in a hotel, so you're going to hear some, maybe some background noise. We've taken out as much of it as possible. But uh, just imagine that you're sitting in a quiet corner of a hotel with Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, and you're going to talk about the Vietnam War. And uh, you'll be fine. All right. My guests this week are the co-directors of the 18-hour, 10-part PBS film, The Vietnam War. Uh, I've only watched eight parts. I apologize for not getting through all 10 and before this uh, interview, but we have Ken Burns and Lynn Novick here. Thank you. So I want to start in kind of a, a strange place, which is uh, I was watching this, and I, right as I turned to my wife and said, they've gotten everybody but the Beatles, Revolution started playing, and I was like, oh, okay, they're the Beatles. Um Getting pop music rights is so often such a hurdle, and uh, certainly you've used pop music before in your films, but this really, there's so much of it. It's sort of a sonic, and you have to do that with a movie about the Vietnam War. Tell me about your approach to getting these so many of these great songs, iconic songs of the era, which often aren't available for movies or TV. We couldn't have afforded, you know, a tenth of the 120 mm. that we had if if it was going to be a kind of traditional relationship. We had a little bit of practice when we did our jazz series of, of working with various uh, recording labels and their companies and forged partnerships that were kind of unusual between uh, competitors, normal competitors. And we met a lot of people there. And what we knew starting out is that we had to do exactly as you said, we were very fortunate to have the original compositions of Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, as well as the work that Yo-Yo Ma and the Silk Rado Ensemble did. But this was going to have to sound like the period, mm -hmm. and we wanted to be very faithful. And so we reached out, actually started with the Beatles, and worked our way down. I guess mm -hmm. that's the only direction from the Beatles. <laughs> and, and found to an artist, to an estate, to a label, to a publisher— this 
enthusiasm to join in at a kind of MFN uh, status that would permit us to be able to have the volume of music and to represent the emotions. I grew up in this period, and right. there isn't a piece of music in this film when it comes on that I am not immediately transported uh, to that moment when I heard it or, or the iconic place, the smells, the clothing, the location. And that's a hugely important part of that. And it's so interesting because I have daughters and granddaughter and they love this music too. Right. And, and I think it's going to be part of the glue, if you will, kind of grossly that makes this series stick. Right. Right. This is such an iconic moment in music history. Like this is, I think for me, the height of rock as political expression, but also just as like great music. Yes. Uh, what was it about that time, about that period that really made that that sing? We've been talking about this all day today and there's a kind of, you know, you, it's a chicken and the egg thing. And like, did how much did, did Vietnam influence the music and how much did the times and the music and the culture and the civil rights and women's movements and environmental movements and all these other sort of raging torrents of, of sort of social activity drive also the Vietnam, we're taking advantage of this music. Our producer, Sarah Botstein, has just worked for years and years to forge those relationships, to communicate our sincerity and the desire for authenticity. We promised that we would use no song before its time. That is to say, if you couldn't hear this on Armed Forces Radio or you weren't you know, listening it to it on your car radio on the way to a protest, then, you know, we wouldn't release it. And then it just became the, the extraordinarily skilled team that we work with of editors and assistant editors and other producers and suggesting stuff. And I would think, oh, I got to get this Otis Redding thing that I love just at this moment called Tell the Truth or, or, or whatever it might be. Let, can we end on Marvin Gaye or whatever it was? And we all added to it. And it was an incredibly fulfilling collaborative moment I think for everybody involved in the film you know that we would be in there people would have ideas songs that they knew their older ones of us who'd lived through it had a kind of you know inside track but everybody contributed uh, you know down to the apprentice editors one of the one of the things that we did which was really fun because we we're talking to people who were in the film who remember this we asked everybody who we interviewed what music do you remember from this time what were the songs that are most meaningful to you. So that was the beginning of our sort of playlist just to begin. Yeah. And so that, you know, sometimes we actually put in music that was meaningful to the people that you're meeting. Right. And, um, you know, that sort of resonates for them personally, but it also, if it, if it worked, it's because it made sense mm -hmm. in the context of the time. And, you know, some, there's songs that are explicitly about the war for sure, but there's also just music that expresses what people are feeling generally, as Ken was saying. Yeah. And, um, the choosing of every song is like putting a, you know, a gem in setting it in your bracelet or something. Just every single one is perfect, is chosen specifically for that moment. And um, it was extraordinary to see that the artists involved in their estates wanted to participate in this mm -hmm. because to them, this music that they created at this time, this was the formative time of their life. This is when they made their careers. This is the world they grew up in and came of age in and made their mark. Mm -hmm. And they wanted their legacy I mean, you wouldn't think that the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Bob Dylan are worrying about their legacy. And <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying they're worried about it, but they wanted to be part of this because they see that a new generation will see the film and see their music in context, like Ken was saying, and understand what it meant to the people then and why it's still so powerful. Right. So it was right. such a privilege. It was just given this gift 
mm. of these gems, and we had to place each one in the perfect place. That's great. Uh, the last time you two made a film together was, I believe, Prohibition uh, in 2011. Do I yeah. have that date right? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, mm-hmm. And... I guess in American history class, you sort of think of the prohibition as kind of like, you know, flappers and jazz right. music and free and easy fun when, and the Vietnam War is a very tumultuous period with a lot of turmoil. And yet, you know, that's probably not a fair way to like, like dismiss those two things down to those elements. Did you find any resonances between those periods as you were thinking about these projects? I don't think there was a connection in, in the way you just suggested, but I think what you have said suggests a problem with all eras in the mm-hmm. past, which is we tend to, to, to latch on to a sort of mind's eye image. If I say the 20s, it may be flappers or it may be revenuers or jazz clubs or Tommy guns or something like that. And we tend to essentially just walk away with some satisfaction that we've got a, a the conventional wisdom about an era. And I right. think Vietnam was imprisoned by that, just as we learned that the story of Prohibition, which was much more interesting mm-hmm. than those flappers and those, uh, you know, uh, revenuers and all that sort of stuff, they're there and they're important. But the themes that resonate today, the demonization of immigrants, you know, a right-wing group sort of wishing to take back America, Mm -hmm. you know, all these sorts of things that we have uh, resonating in, in, in our time today are there. And so I think for us, we could see that Vietnam gets inherited and gets increasingly sort of miniaturized mm-hmm. in in its meaning and it's imported everything gets down to a sort of thing and and it's coupled with some of the very divisions that were spawned in Vietnam help create the political divisions that actually almost retroactively determine what you believe so mm-hmm. you know depending on which cable news you watch obsessively at night despite what you felt during the Vietnam war you might now feel something different because that particular set of rather narrow constructs governs your political life. And for many today, it's all about the divisions and the, and, and the dialectic between, you know, good and bad, red state and blue state, whatever it might be. So I, I think the, the principal job in prohibition is the principal job we would then face, but in much greater proportions with Vietnam, which is how do you then get in? and liberate oneself first and then one's audience from the tyranny of that reductive conventional wisdom and share something that's dimensional. It doesn't mean you've taken away the flappers of Vietnam or the or the revenuers of Vietnam or the Tommy guns of Vietnam, but what you've done is you put them in a context. And, mm. and so our film is essentially that. We wish to unpack all of those images and then let us repack something with a lot more force, a lot more undertow, a lot more complication, but a lot more accuracy. And we hope, we think, emotion that helps propel it and with no small assist by this extraordinary music mm-hmm. to sort of make it a more durable uh, message, conversation. You know, it's, it's, I'm just listening to everything Ken said, which is so insightful. I'm just trying to think about what we were getting at with Prohibition. And one of the themes and threads, and I never really thought about this until right now, is, you know, there's this tremendous irony. Um, prohibition is the law of unintended consequences. That was really, you know, there was an idealism that we had a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Um, drunkenness, it was called, right? And we're going to solve it by getting rid of alcohol and we're going to have heaven on earth. And if you think about it, there's this tremendous, you know, American naive optimism, idealism, belief in ourselves. We can solve any problem. We can do anything we want. 
and prohibition, we ran into the buzzsaw of actually human nature mm. is going to limit what you can accomplish no matter how, you know, idealistic you are. And Vietnam, in a way, is the same problem in a completely different context yeah. where we hoped we could do something good. And, there you know, is we say nothing was, new under the right, sun. <laughs> it was, you know, good you know, decent people with good intentions got us into this. Yeah. And that's exactly the same thing with prohibition. And we sort of demonized the, you know, the temperance activists as being sort of small minded and narrow and whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's, I don't know, I never, I never really thought about it, but I think it's because we're interested in these complicated questions mm. of there's this, you know, wonderful idealism that we can aspire to. And then there's the reality. Yeah. And in between there is what we're interested in. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You brought up intentions as I was watching this, you get to the end of, I think the second episode and, it says something like somebody within the government realized that the war was, if not impossible to win, would just be very difficult to win. And then you look and realize they're going to be there for like 10 more years. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about, yes, they had great intentions. Nobody saw those intentions. How important is it to understanding history to try to understand intent? And how important is it to understanding history to try to understand how that intention was enacted upon the world, sometimes in awful ways? Exactly. Well, you've just described it and there's no formula. Mm. You know, I mean, that's brilliant mm. and and you get it. But what's really important is that you there's not a law that sort of sets out which comes first or which comes second. And so the, the tension for us as filmmakers is how to balance both of those things at the same time. And at mm. some points in the film, as you have already seen and will see, I believe, you can feel it from one direction, and in another moment, you can feel it from another. And that's exactly lawful, mm-hmm. I think, because the human nature that Lynn is speaking about is why that tension is there. Mm-hmm. And the best of attentions, gang after glay, the best laid pans of mice and men, mm-hmm. gang after glay. Um, and yet, at the same time, the other side of that is there and present. And so we we just had to be there to kind of collect what was happening. Mm-hmm. And and remember, the question you asked is intellectual mm-hmm. and extraordinarily thoughtful. But quite often in a particularly in a film, it's communicated in other ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, through music, which is a kind of nonverbal form of communication, in imagery again, another way. And so what we're having to calibrate is not just the intention of our narrator, to, mm-hmm. to borrow your phrase, or the talking heads, but in fact, many other elements, sound effects. I mean, the sound of an AK-47 going into human flesh has got its own kind of intention, does it not? Mm-hmm. And so we're we're trying to calibrate that. And a lot of it is out of our control. So instead of being creators were actually corralers. You know what I mean? We're, <laughs> yeah. we're sort of trying to take all the free electrons that are given off by the collision of all these different elements, both as filmmakers, meaning the, the techniques and the things that we employ, but also within the story, all the elements that are there, the politics from above, the policy that you're speaking of directly now, personal experiences, all the other things, and say, you know, we just got to figure out a way to manage them and corral them so they're at least in the service of some bigger thing that we're we're going towards but I, i'm i'm blown away by the thoughtfulness of your of your question it's really at the heart of our understanding of what we're doing mm-hmm. this is really to me a staggering film a staggering accomplishment in a lot of ways because you're balancing 
both the American troops, but then also, you know, American lawmakers, both sides of the Vietnamese conflict. Uh, you have the, the governments on both South and North Vietnam and soldiers from both South and North Vietnam. You have the anti-war movement. You have the families back home. It's a lot of stuff to juggle. How did you find that balance? You ever look at the front page of a paper? Mm. You know what I mean? There are a lot of stories. Yeah. And so essentially that's it. I mean, I'll let Linz answer this. I don't want to hog the microphone, but I think that it is, you know, our lives are like that. Mm-hmm. It's it's choosing what's the headline and what's the insert and what you can say you'll see on page 23. Mm-hmm. Um, and, all, and then by the time you're at 23, the headline's no longer there. You got the little notice that was on the front page is now the whole page. Yeah. So that's what we're doing. That's the nature of kind of epic uh, narrative construction. You know what I mean? Generational, all the different kinds of things that you're talking about. But then it's like how you calibrate that. I mean, it was sort of our article of faith from the beginning that this was going to be a very complicated story, exactly as you described. So, you know, if you look at our first proposal, we listed all those categories of people. We're going to try to find them, mm-hmm. and we're going to try to represent their experiences. And we're not going to have 5,000 people, but we're going to have, as it turns out in the film, I think there are 79 people that you get to know. We interviewed 100. We met probably 1,000. Mm-hmm. And every time we were trying to figure that out, each person was going to have to carry some weight. And many people actually embody more than one of the categories that you described, yeah. which makes it very interesting. So we were we found ourselves very lucky and happily getting to know people who go through sometimes transformations or families that can embody some of these many different forces that are at work. Interesting. And, um, you know, we couldn't have mapped it out mm-hmm. at the beginning. We, we had our kind of wish list of kind of idea of what we were mm-hmm. looking for, but what it, it's a very intuitive process of just keeping an open mind and meeting people and hearing from them and then figuring out, oh, wait— this could happen. Someone could go to Vietnam and while they're there fighting, could be hearing about the anti-war movement and wondering if what is happening is right mm-hmm. and maybe even protest the war while in Vietnam, mm-hmm. which happened. Or maybe there's someone who is in the U.S. in college and decides first they want to be in the military, then they decide the war is wrong, then they get drafted. Now what are they going to do? Yeah. And you see people wrestling with these sort of questions of conscience and patriotism throughout the film. And, you know, we hoped we would find that. We didn't really know. Yeah. And it was really just by getting to know people and getting to know the literature, getting to know the scholars. And we found the same things in Vietnam. Yeah. And then the huge job is having collected is kind of saying all this material Mm-hmm. making a coherent narrative out of it, and their chronology helped us. Yeah. So we actually follow through what happened in time, mm-hmm. and some of the characters you meet in the beginning and you follow all the way to the end. Mm-hmm. Some people just come in for an episode or two, and that is the work that we have loved doing so much for the last six years, seven mm-hmm. years of just trying to make sense of all this. Mm-hmm. And with a huge, a hugely important partner in this is Jeff Ward, our writer, right. because he is the master at this kind of braiding on paper, but then we have to take what's done on paper and make it into a film. Yeah. And that's a whole other thing, which is Ken was saying, all the layers that you have to, you know, work, make work. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's kind of magical when it works. And when it doesn't, you can throw your hands up and say, oh, my God, what are we going to do? And we did that many times. <laughs> so uh, I, I always I have my own answer to this as somebody who interviews a lot of people. But when you're talking to somebody, when do you know you found like a nugget that's going to be in the film? Like, when, do, you, do you know when you hear it? <laughs> yeah, you, I'm sure you do, yeah, right? There's, yeah. <laughs> there's, um, you know, I, there's so much focus and attention in the moment that I actually get up from an interview and my hands and my feet are freezing cold. Like, it's like almost everything like is gone into the surface, into the, the thinking and the listening, more mm-hmm. importantly, the listening, because you've got a set of questions, but you want to be 
poised to abandon that if you detect something. And that detection has to be sort of, you have to be keenly aware. You have to sort of develop the eyesight of a different animal and the ears of a different animal in order to do that. And so I'm very much aware in the moment when I, you know, you've got a broad, you know, you're you're in the process of producing a broad transcript, Mm -hmm. but I'm always putting the open bracket and then the closed bracket knowing that that's what I'll use. And then I say, oh, and then they picked up again. This was this had gone off, and I'm, I'm going to do that. And uh, when it's done, I, I can rarely remember those things. It takes getting the transcript and going back. But you take away one or two things that stay with you. You'll just never forget, and it's very rare yeah. that that isn't stuff that ends up in the final film. Excellent. Excellent. And that's a long process because you may do an interview with somebody and, and take 75 selects. And if they're in 10 times over the three that's or four a- a- episodes that the arc of their story is part of, which would be a kind of, you know, average character, right. uh, you know, a secondary character, say, that's a lot. Mm. It's a huge contribution. And mm. so you're really talking about finding the needles in a haystack and... That's a thrilling pursuit. Yeah. There, there are several instances in this project where people, several people had to sort of tell their story at length. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly Hal Kushner, the prisoner of war that we get to know. And he really, he had an epic, unimaginably difficult experience in the war, having been captured in um, 1967 and not been liberated until 1973 and been mm-hmm. kept in jungle camps in South Vietnam and then moved to Hanoi. And he didn't talk about his experience very much. He's, a very successful doctor. He moved on. He doesn't want to dwell in that place very much. He's much, very much a forward-looking person, but he, he was willing to tell us his story, and, but he had to tell it the way he had to tell it. Mm. He, he couldn't really, he could answer questions, certainly, but he had in his mind the way he wanted to tell the story. Yeah. And so it was really more of a, like a, not a monologue exactly, but he had to walk through every step of it to get to the end. Sometimes it's a yielding. Sometimes right. the the questioner is the person who directs the extraction of the memory. And mm-hmm. other times you just have to actually be present to permit that person right. whatever mode they need to, to, to do right. it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, in, in watching that happen, it's sort of like you're reliving it with him. And yeah. sometimes it's not. Sometimes you're like kind of saying, someone's telling you something about what happened to them and how they feel now. And that's very powerful as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we just feel in this project that we were given extraordinary testimony by so many people that our job was really to honor that and make a film worthy of the gift that they had given us and to represent the complexity of human experience that they had shared with us and the courage to really reveal themselves. I mean, it felt like people were just literally like taking their skin off and showing us what's underneath sometimes, you know, yeah. and just such risk. And mm. such courage to really be honest yeah. Yeah. Um, and to share sometimes really the darkest moments of their lives um, because they wanted maybe to unburden themselves a little bit, but also because I think they hoped, I think all of them hoped that in so doing, other people could, you know, gain something from that understanding of mm. this really difficult moments in the human existence that we all have to face, yeah. you know. Um, it's really, we've never had this experience quite at this level Mm. on any film. 
So you've probably uh, had this experience, which is that you are running late for something and you need to leave in the morning and you don't get to have breakfast. I was running late for this very podcast this morning when I was headed out to record. So I grabbed an RX bar on the way out. I, I keep them right there in my pantry. They're great. They're very tasty. They're very nutritious. They have some, they have great whole ingredients. Uh, and when I can't make myself a leisurely, you know, five course breakfast, which is, which is what I prefer in RX bar. It's really great. It's a great way to have your breakfast on the go. So their core ingredients really do all the talking. It's like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds. No BS. And those real food ingredients, they taste really good. You can taste the cacao, the real fruit, the spices, the sea salt. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit, there is an RX bar for you. They come in 11 delicious flavor varieties. Let me speak up for, I think just, I think the straight peanut butter is really tasty. Like, I mean, I'm a peanut butter aficionado. You may not be, but I really like it. I think it's really great. They're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're dairy-free. There's no added sugar, no artificial colors, artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. And the egg whites are used for the protein with uh, leaving some dates to bind and some nuts for texture. So you can do this breakfast on the go like I do it. You can have a snack at the office. You can have it in your bag for the plane or if you're going on a bike ride or a hike. And it's a really great snack for before or after your workout. So if you want to try the RX Bar, uh, you should go to rxbar.com slash interesting and you enter the promo code interesting at checkout. That'll give you 25% off your first order. So again, that's rxbar.com slash interesting. Enter the promo code interesting for 25% off. Was there any reticence from people? Because when I, I was born after America right. left Vietnam, but my whole life it's been a thing people don't talk about. You know? Exactly. Like it's been around and in the atmosphere, but not... You know, there's, there's a range of experience. We found this in our film on the Second World War that we made together. There's reticence, and that generation was particularly reticent, having mm -hmm. been sort of trained and conditioned by the Depression and then asked to participate in a kind of singular group effort, unlike the Vietnam War, which is more disjointed almost from the beginning and because of the cultural and changes that had taken place post-World War II into a different environment. But there's a great deal of reticence still, admirable mm -hmm. and... Um, psychologically understandable. Um, sometimes there are people who are practiced. Sometimes there are people who've been telling this story for an awful long time. Sometimes you're hearing stuff for the very first time and that, that sort of great gift of being there at, at, the, at the birth of expressed memory is a huge responsibility. You could even say a burden to do it right and carry it through. This is a long process. And so you kind of carefully take this egg and move it all the way down through the years, mm -hmm. trying to respect and remember because you got other stuff that's coming in. And so, yeah, there's reticence, but there's also, I mean, some people spoke very freely and some people didn't. Sometimes within the context of the questions that we asked, something could be more freely expressed, another thing less so. You know, that's also kind of axiomatic and lawful. You know, I remember there's a moment when Roger Harris, who's a Marine in um, 1967 in the northern part of um, South Vietnam, and he was describing a really horrendously terrible day where there was a lot of casualties that got ambushed going in and out of the DMZ. And he says, there's a lot of death and destruction and I don't want to talk about it. Mm. And he just shakes his head. And in his not talking about it, you understand what it is that he's not going to talk about. Right. And it's almost more powerful than telling you what happened. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that can be, it's not really reticence. It's kind of a, 
I don't know even how to find the words to describe. It's a very powerful moment. I just don't think he was willing to take the full imagery of dead Marines Mm. out of his lockbox and parade it around. And as Lynn says, in some ways that's more effective. Mm. Mies tells us in other places about putting pieces of special people in body bags, so you know that he's not unwilling to share that. But I think the memories of that day that were so perfectly horrible, he needs to, for his own sake, keep it locked away. And for our own sake, we're happy to let him censor because we can see writ on his face Mm -hmm. exactly exactly the clouds, the blood, the darkness, the the horror of of what it is. I think it speaks volumes to not speak. Exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah. Like I, like I sort of said, Vietnam is always there. My yeah. whole life it's been, you know, right down to, well, this is going up in September, but we're recording it the night after John McCain cast one of the key mm-hmm. votes. Probably our most, one of our most famous Vietnam veterans cast yeah. one of the key votes to defeat the healthcare, uh, Republican health care measures. So it, it's always there. It's always present. And yet it's also sort of unexpressed That's, in the American yeah. psyche. Can you talk a little bit about that, that dichotomy, that, that divide between you know, the Vietnam that we know happened in the Vietnam we don't dare talk about. Well, that's Carl Marlantis in the opening of the film saying it's like living in a family with an alcoholic father. Mm-hmm. Shh, we don't talk about it. Yeah. And he's, he, he has just described that he and his wife were friends with another couple. And it took 12 years for the wives to discover that both husbands had been in the Marines Corps. Nobody said a word about it. So mm-hmm. what you have for a variety of reasons that may be obvious or not so obvious. It, war is hell. Mm. And this one was one we lost. And this was one that tore the country in two. Mm-hmm. And, and those divisions are still there and, and made manifest. That for all of those reasons and dozens of others that aren't just between people, but within people, the complicated psychologies that people bring home from war. And I don't mean the fragilities of PTSD. I mean everything, all the whole spectrum of human experience engaged in the, the sort of understanding of war. Mm-hmm. Um, we just, we just have to understand that that is, is there yeah. and it's something to fight through. And the purpose of the film is to sort of say, how do we take this, you know, awkward silence mm-hmm. and sort of begin to talk about it and say, this is what happened. It's not as bad as you think. Yeah. And yet, here's what really happened, we think. Mm. Yeah. The meanings of these conflicts uh, in U.S. history, like we're still sort of redefining the Civil War. And that happened, you know, 150 years ago. <laughs> How do you see Vietnam as its meaning as having shifted since it happened to now? I'm not sure it has shifted that mm. much. I mean, that's, I think, we're maybe kind of stuck mm. in a moment. And we've been thinking about this a lot because trying to explain the film we made, this, mm-hmm. you know, this question comes up and when we're in the middle of trying to tell the story, we're just trying to get the story down and figure out what, 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 what happened. But um, I know it could be said pretty easily that America before the war and after are really different countries. Yeah. Mm. Just, you know, and there are a lot of reasons for that. It's not just because of the war, like Ken was saying. It's also just cultural changes that are happening because of lots of other things. But the war is a big part of it. Yeah. And um, some of that is for the good, and some of that is not, perhaps. And sure. that that's the question that we're really, I think that's sort of where the country is so polarized around this, yeah. is 
was Vietnam. It's a tragedy and many thousands of people, Americans died and millions of Vietnamese died. So we can never say that was good. That was horrendously bad, obscene, terrible. Right. But for our society, you know, we had a kind of uprising, outpouring of civic engagement of people who were questioning what the government was saying and they weren't being told the truth and they were wondering if this was in our national interest. And ultimately, the war was ended because of that. Right. And the war wasn't going to go well otherwise. Mm -hmm. So that could be a positive thing that helps Americans to question and ask and engage and get involved and take a stand. That's Mm -hmm. all good. Mm -hmm. But it's still a big, huge question. Yeah. You know, because you had soldiers coming home to a country that didn't thank them because there was so much suspicion, mistrust, rancor, disappointment, confusion about the war. Mm -hmm. And the soldiers became kind of the easiest target in some ways, the veterans. And so there's just so much bad feeling on all sides about this. And so there's guilt and there's mistrust and misunderstanding and there's hurt Mm -hmm. and there's pain. And we need to kind of work through all that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're still going to be stuck in this kind of, Ken often talks about this kind of binary yes and no, right and wrong kind of place. And that is one of the legacies of Vietnam that we need to work on. You know, each generation rediscovers and reexamines that part of the past that gives their present meaning. Yeah. But it does take a, a few decades past an event to even begin to sort it out because those psychological wounds are present, the physical wounds are present. The, there's still deeply felt absences of the people who did not make it back. There are um, all sorts of reasons why. I mean, the Civil War is the most important event in the United States, and we do continually return to it for some sort of understanding of who we are right now. Mm -hmm. But each generation has a different view of the Civil War, and we found working on our series, um, you know, so so long ago that it was sort of smothered in romance and mythology. So too was World War II periodically. I mean, you take a saving Private Ryan to sort of strip away, at least in those first 20 minutes of, of that landing at Normandy, the, the kind of romance that this was some sort of, you know, crusade in which the good war, to, yeah. and, and, and that becomes an important stripping away of that. Uh, and I think Vietnam is at that place where we can, for the very first time, be able to say, you know, it's over there on this mountaintop. Mm-hmm. We're here on this mountaintop, but I see some things now mm-hmm. a little bit clearer than I did before. Yeah. And I think that's where where we are right now and yeah. that we've been privileged, the two of us, to be able to manage a group of talented people who've worked with us for a decade to try to climb the mountain and sort of say, okay, what is this telling about who we are? It is, it is in the past that we define who we are in the present and we give ourselves meaning and history itself is the questions we in the present ask of the past. So it's going to be informed by who we are, whether we're aware of it or not. And so that then points not just to, okay, Gettysburg happened on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, 1863, but why am I asking this kind of question about Gettysburg in 1961 at the, or 1963 at the centennial? And in 150 years, we're asking a whole different set of questions of the exact same event. And so too in Vietnam, I think we've, this kind of the statue of limitations has run out on the journalism and the near history. And now we're at a place where we can really look back 
triangulate or average a whole bunch of human experiences and say, you know what, there's been some new scholarship. Here are 80 people you ought to get to know, and many, many more who, who appear historically, but mm-hmm. 80 commentators. And um, let's see if we can get our arms around this thing, at least for a time being. Mm. This is not the definitive work. We, you know, there'll be another generation which will look at it from an entirely different angle. You know, who knows? Maybe we're going to go back to Vietnam in thirty years and fight because they're our allies. Fight the invasion of the Chinese, and then all of a sudden, you know, the Vietnam War becomes this. Isn't it strange that we had a war against them, but they're <laughs> our our closest allies? I mean, I'm making this up, yeah. but those things do happen in history. Mm-hmm. And and stuff that was big becomes small, and stuff that was small become hugely big. Yeah, yeah. You tell the Founding Fathers our oldest alliances with Britain, they might uh, <laughs> have some thoughts on that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, there's so much great journalism out of Vietnam. There's so many great fictional works out of Vietnam, novels, mm-hmm. movies, things like that. Whereas, what did you look at as you started sort of the research process? Like, what were some things you looked at or drew from, whether from journalism or even, you know, like fictional portrayals that told us how people people were thinking about it at the time. Well, you know, um, for the most part, we relied on nonfiction, mm-hmm. memoirs, historical pieces, journalism. There was one work of fiction that was extremely helpful to us, though, which was a, a novel called The Sorrow of War, mm-hmm. written by a Vietnamese, North Vietnamese veteran, Bao Ninh. And the reason why that was extraordinarily helpful was because it represented the experiences of North Vietnamese soldiers in a completely different way than the official sort of government narrative does. It was very human. It was very authentic. It was extremely raw Mm. and difficult. And, you know, the novel opens with a veteran of the war who's left home in Hanoi in 1969, is now 1975. And the war has ended, and thank goodness everyone's supposed to be so happy that the victory, the great victory has happened. His job, go into the Central Highlands and try to find the bodies of all your friends who died. Mm of which there are 300,000 missing. Yeah. And he's Still wandering around the day. jungle, yeah. right? And it's called the Valley of the Lost Souls. And he's looking around, obviously not finding anyone. And that's sort of this existential moment of the end of the war for the victors. Yeah. And I don't think we could have understood anything about this experience if we had not read that novel. Yeah. Because you can't find that experience written in a nonfiction account from yeah. the North Vietnamese side. So there are occasions when fiction can be very true. Yeah. And we were able to... Uh, convinced Bounin, who's still alive, to do an interview for us, and he has one of the opening voices of the film, kind of changing the conversation from who won and who lost to only people who never fight want to argue about who won and who lost. So, you know, we're very open to whatever sources can help us understand the truth of the matter. Yeah. Mm. And I think... You know, I personally, just as a quirk of my own, I'm, I, I don't revisit the films about the war that I've seen uh, once we've decided to do it. I don't want to be influenced one way or the other by it. But I have comrades who have no such ridiculous uh, constrictions. But I, I think what's interesting is that we ended up with, I, I can only describe them as ringers in our film. Baunin is one. Yeah. You know, uh, we have uh, um, an army grunt who ends up writing one of the most celebrated and most read of all novels about Vietnam. Another Marine who's written a best-selling novel about Vietnam. A woman from North Vietnam who had extraordinary experiences, who's turned her stuff and her, her experiences into beautiful writing. And, and I think 
what we very consciously did, as I am doing right now, is not tell you who they are mm. so that you can meet them as the 17, 18-year-old, 19-year-old Americans or 17-year-old North Vietnamese that they were, mm -hmm. let their experiences wash over, and only at the very end of the film find out that in order for them to keep the wolf from the door, to heal the demons, to sort of put to rest things, at least partially, yeah. they could pour these conflicts into extraordinary works of, in that case, fiction, mm -hmm. and others have done other things. But so we wanted to just say this is what it was like for this 18-year-old, and then later on you can find that that 18-year-old did this with those experiences. You were talking earlier about how any any sort of thing you bring to it has its own intention to it. Right. Any image, any sound. You have a lot of footage from newscasts, a lot of footage from, I assume, some sort of army filming, something like that, mm -hmm. in this film. How do you decide which snippets to use? How do you decide to, to make your argument? How so, do you, so go ahead. Implicit in your excellent question is just the idea that, that this art, or if that's what this is, whatever we've done, mm -hmm. is additive. And mm -hmm. it is, but it's mostly subtractive. So what we're doing is we're conducting that interview that's two hours long and maybe somebody's in for three minutes and they're a major star. Mm -hmm. So that really means that we've taken 120 minutes and found that 117 didn't make it in the film, but the remaining three are so good that that makes that person central to the story that we're trying to tell. Right. So too with the number of images that we have to consider and so too with the thousands of hours of footage that that, that we uh that we reviewed and then selected for the film. So in our early processes, we're moving as much of the material as we can into the fray, mm -hmm. knowing full well that in the first couple of passes, we're just carving away, not, not bad stuff, just stuff that doesn't compete with the narrative that seems to be emerging from what the material's telling us, as well as what we're imposing on us, mm -hmm. our intention. But we're, we're, we're more willing to, to learn from what the collision of things in the material tells us than, than be wedded forever, like a script etched in stone, draft one. We, you know, we go through dozens of drafts and unbelievable sea changes in, in how the thing is constructed. So it's really subtractive. And the cutting room floor is not filled with you know, terrible scenes. It's filled with super good scenes, which if you looked at, you go, whoa, what were you guys thinking leaving that out? And we could then describe to you six months or 18 months of anguish mm. trying to keep that alive, trying to, trying to perform a kind of artistic CPR on something that in the end, you just kind of go, you know what, it's super good, but it doesn't fit in this mm. thing. It's Amadeus, too many notes, yeah. you know? And, and, and that's, it's a merciless and relentlessly terrifying and um, sad part of what we do, but it's super necessary. And you kind of develop a kind of courage about, wow, I might have to let go of this favorite thing that I have in this scene mm -hmm. or this episode or the whole damn film in order to, you know, my Civil War film began with a quote that was so good it was there for nine-tenths of the editing. <laughs> and then I realized it, 
it didn't belong at the beginning. It belonged someplace else. We replaced it with the quote that's appropriate. And that other quote never appears in the film. Uh And I use it all the time because it's still one of my best friends, but it's not in the Civil War series. And I still to this day go, why isn't it in there? Why didn't I go and find it? I use it more. I quote it more. I cite it more than I do the opening quote of the Civil War film. But it was the right decision to make. What is, what is that quote that you had to cut? So <laughs> the quote is, future years will never know the seething hell, the black infernal background, the countless minor scenes and interiors of the secession war, and it is best they should not. The real war will never get in the books. Mm-hmm. Walt Whitman. Oh. And- oh, I was just, I mean, in, in trying to think about how we choose footage and pictures and all of that, what I think is surprising to people to understand is that when we're trying, as we were describing before, we find the people and we sort of have our script that Jeff has written, and then we have to find visual material, which we're also looking for along the same time. When we're trying to figure out what stories to tell, we're not actually worrying about whether there is material to illustrate. Mm. And so that means that we find, you know, an extraordinary story. We meet someone and we think their story is important. We want to include it. And then we have to go and see, well, what can we find visually to represent that? Mm-hmm. And it might be literally their experience. Maybe there was a camera person following their unit around. Unlikely. Mm-hmm. So then it's, well, okay, we'd like to make sure that we're at least looking at Marines in that time frame, using the right weapons and wearing the right uniform in the right place. It's not going to be that exact guy's unit. I mean, every once in a while we get lucky. But it, it kind of means that there's a, a level of um, creative ferment to try to make visual to represent what the people have told us what we want the audience to understand right. and have it be authentic and um, there's all kinds of serendipitous things that happen in that process which right. are hard to describe but I think make the film we you know that those are the moments that we live for really and then every once in a while we're able to really dig deep and find some treasure trove um, Carl Marlantis, who um, Ken was talking about, who speaks at the beginning of the film about the alcoholic father. He was in the Marines, and he was in an epic battle, um, which he describes. And we didn't have any pictures or any footage. And eventually, one of our colleagues was able to find some of his friends, and they had some pictures of him that he'd never seen. And then, you know, little by little, we sort of collected raw material that could help make that story real. Mm. Yeah. And he saw it and the he other saw night. It for the first time. For the first time yeah. and was blown away as if there was a videographer there at the time right. recording exactly that he did. And it was a combination of still accurate still photographs and footage that was as close to the kind of terrain with Marines mm. fighting the same kind of desperate, uh, intimate brawl battle that they were in. And he, I mean, for us to take the kind of poetic license that we have to take in every film that we've ever made, there's not a single uh, photograph of battle during the Civil War. So all those battle scenes are themselves kind of, you know, artful, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, poetic license. For him to think that it was exactly his experience and to be blown away. And as he said, he was having difficulty talking and speaking in the aftermath of of, of one clip out of you know, seven or eight or nine that we showed that night to a big audience in in his, um, basically his hometown. And that's a big deal Mm. and to us. And that's that's for us the proof of the pudding. Sometimes I think we learned a lot inadvertently in the process um, of what exists and what doesn't exist. And then you're sort of thinking, well, where, why is there a camera person here? Why isn't there a camera person there? Why was this moment recorded and not this other moment? And one of the things that, you know, 
really struck us over the course of the project was that we have a number of North Vietnamese and Viet Cong soldiers talking about how difficult the war was and how morale would break down and people would, you know, want to go home to their mother or they would want to give up or they would want to run away or just, you know, how impossibly difficult the war was. There wasn't enough food, just impossibly harsh conditions. Mm. And so we were looking for pictures to show how terrible the war was for these soldiers. And there weren't any. Yeah. Because those kind of pictures were not taken. Yeah. Because that would not be helpful for the soldiers to see that kind of thing or for the home front to see. And our wonderful co-producer, Salima Alamin, managed to find two pictures mm. in all the thousands of pictures we looked at that showed North Vietnamese soldiers looking despondent. Yeah. And those became like, they're worth their weight in gold. We horse traded between episodes. Where can we put this picture? Where is it most important to use this to show what we're saying or we mm. want the film to say? And just the absence of that, it took us a while to think, well, you're not looking hard enough. Why can't you find those pictures? And then we realized eventually mm. they don't exist. They get censored. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm. Photographers censored themselves. They didn't take those pictures. Mm. Shaving's fun. Shaving's good. Shaving is a great way to remind yourself why you're alive. I Like, I honestly believe this. People tell me when I read these art of shaving ads that I sound like I'm in a cult, but I really do like shaving that much, and I really don't like you casting aspersions on me for that. And I have really enjoyed the new Kingsman-inspired products from The Art of Shaving. Uh, they have kind of this bourbon scent to them. They're very rich and masculine and, and fun. And like they really do make you smell like Colin Firth. I can't guarantee that you will look like Colin Firth. But, you know, I mean, I certainly do. So anyway, these are inspired by Kingsman The Golden Circle, which is in theaters September 22nd. They combine a rich woodsy base with a hint of vanilla, and then the bourbon amber scent evokes both heritage and tradition. So with its blend of botanical ingredients and essential oils, this pre-shave formula is perfectly suited for men with tough beards. Formulated with skin conditioners and essential oils, then the shaving cream will help you hydrate and soften your beard hair for a close and comfortable shave. And then blended with essential oils and moisturizers, the light and quick absorbing aftershave balm hydrates and refreshes the skin after shaving, leaving it feeling smooth. So the Kingsman Collection items are available at the Art of Shaving retail locations, but also online at theartofshaving.com. If you also wish to smell like Colin Firth, you can see the new movie Kingsman the Golden Circle in theaters September 22nd, and then you can go to theartofshaving.com. Our listeners receive 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code TODD, T-O-D-D. So go to theartofshaving.com, use the promo code TODD, T-O-D-D, to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Again, that's my special promo code TODD, T-O-D-D, to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Ken, I've talked to you a couple times, and every time, inevitably, the conversation sort of turns to how you can't talk about the history of America without talking about the history of race in yeah. America. And this comes at that question in sort of a different way, which is these soldiers almost had to turn to racism as a defense mechanism. You have a whole section about racism toward the Vietnamese yeah. uh, as a way to get through battle. What, was, what were sort of your thoughts as you were talking about that topic with these soldiers. Well, I'm very pleased that you saw that and and it stuck out because I think, you know, the traditional dynamic of race in the United States is well represented in this film. Mm -hmm. And um, it's always there in anything you're doing if it's it's got an American uh, subject matter. Uh, so we do have African-American soldiers and they are grappling with more mm -hmm. stuff in their 
pack than the rest of the soldiers that are there, and that dynamic is there. But what is so interesting, it's true of all wars, but particularly the wars you find where you're you're fighting a different race, mm-hmm. um, that that you can very easily demonize them. You know, Japanese Americans were interned, but German and Italian Americans were not in the United States during the Second World War. So that's an incredibly important dynamic. And so here, in order to fight the gooks, you had to do exactly that. Turn yeah. them into subhumans. Make them less than we were. And, you know, in one Marine says, I only killed one person in Vietnam. And the rest was the ability to objectify so completely as mm-hmm. to deny that person their legitimacy as a human being. It was easier to kill. And as he says, it's 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 racism one-on-one, but it's what you need to do if mm-hmm. you're going to have young people, you know, um, fighting your wars and staying sane while they do that work. Mm. And then you begin to realize the kind of Faustian bargain you have to make in war and how, I mean, it's so easy to dismiss it and there shouldn't be any wars and there shouldn't, but good luck on that one. Mm. It's not ever going to happen. And we'll always be around to start studying them for what they remind us. But I, I think we have to understand the individual bargain that everybody has to make mm. in order to kill the other. In order to suspend everything they've been taught, you know, people coming from Sunday school, church school, or Bible study, or church camp, and then going into boot camp. So it's like, thou shalt not kill except these people. Yeah. Mm. I think that the Vietnamese also, you know, dehumanized Americans. Mm, Yeah. And dehumanized each other. So it's like kind of saying it's it's a function of the activity of war, which is inhuman to begin with. But um, it was interesting to hear that the North Vietnamese called the South Vietnamese puppets. And a puppet is not a person. It's a toy, mm. yeah. you know, controlled by somebody else, obviously. And then they called the Americans bandits. And then South Vietnamese called the communists basically some kind of composite animal. Mm. So, And the kind of pronouns they use are not for people. Mm. And it yeah. just speaks to what is kind of saying, just, you know, killing people. On the one hand, it's a very abnormal activity on the other hand we seem to take to it rather yeah. easily once you break that you know one of the right what is when nop say it's like one of the north vietnamese veterans says you know i've seen um animals in the jungle mm-hmm. and they kill because they're hungry mm. but people no the only people that kill because they kill and right. so when you said it's inhuman i kind of went nope i it's think human, it's actually right. human exactly you know i think it's actually human and then and maybe if we were to realize that this is a constituent a major constituent building block of who we are not just collectively in which we then get to say well it's just them right. you know but it's really us that a violent ultimately violent gesture is built in hardwired to us then then we've got, you know, a lot of explaining to do. Mm, you know, yeah. we really do to ourselves, to our right. maker, if we have one, to our friends, to our country, to the world, to posterity, you know, to the planet, because mm. there are animals that kill only f- to feed themselves, and we don't do that. Yeah, We kill yeah. to feed ourselves, and we kill other human beings because we're unhappy with what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, like I said, I was watching this film last night as the healthcare boats were coming in. I was following that on Twitter. And wow. Twitter has a really bad habit of unmooring you from like history. Uh, is you just, you kind of feel like every moment is the most important moment, even though objectively that's not true. And I, I guess I found that dichotomy so interesting between, you know, here's this famous tumultuous period uh, in American history on my television, and here is a 
also tumultuous period in American history going on just scrolling down the screen right in front of me. There's a lot of talking right now about how we're in this unique moment mm-hmm. of, of craziness in America. Mm-hmm. But also it's not in many ways. What are, what are some things about this moment that you find unique? And then what are things that are, you know, we just keep coming well, back to that over and over. Maybe we should have started at the beginning, yeah. but I've got a, <laughs> I've, I've got a, I've got a, a, a sort of a wrap. If you'll, if you'll just <laughs> withstand it, it for Go one for second. It. So what if I told you that Lynn and I had been working on a film about mass demonstrations across the country, protesting the administration, mm. that it was about a white house in disarray, obsessed with leaks, that it was about a president angry at the news media for making stories up, mm. that it was about a huge document drop of classified material, hacked material, put into the public sphere that destabilizes our conventional wisdom of stuff, that it's about asymmetrical warfare, that the mighty might of the U.S. military doesn't seem to know what to do, that it's about accusations that a political campaign reached out to a foreign power at the time of a national election to help influence that election. You'd say, whoa, you guys have been working on, you're you're no longer historians, you're journalists. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. We started this film in 2006. That's what this film is about. And it's and that's only, uh, you know, five or six things yeah. that resonate with, I mean, today, and I don't mean that in a kind of general sense of America in the teens. I'm talking about today. Yeah. The moment that Twitter seems to be following, which, by the way, the moment is really the only place you can be. Yeah. <laughs> okay? And so that's okay. Yeah. The problem is how much the external stimuli rule or you rule the external stimuli. Mm. So, you know, we see so many things. History doesn't repeat itself, but we know that human nature remains the same and it's going to superimpose itself over stuff Mm -hmm. and we're going to be able to see it. But let's remember, we have not yet killed 750,000 of our own kind over these divisions as Mm. we did in the Civil War. Um, we have not had the kind of violence, the hundreds of bombings and all of the stuff uh, yet, or the removal of a president yet, that the Vietnam War era uh, was characterized by. So I think that we can, I mean, history is kind of optimistic. I remember after the 08 meltdown, friends, even economists, people who are, or, or people who are in business were saying, Yo, you know, we're in a depression because mm-hmm. they'd lost their whole thing was wiped out. And I'd say, no, we're not. Mm-hmm. And they go, oh, yes, we are. And I'd say, no. I said, in the depression, the animals in the zoo in many U.S. cities were shot and the meat distributed to the poor. Mm-hmm. When that happens, I'll be willing to say this is a depression. Mm-hmm. So then all of a sudden, history is a suddenly an ally for a kind of optimistic Take. So this is, these be tough times mm. and very divided times. And we personally believe that most of those divisions had their seeds planted in Vietnam and they just continue to produce this kind of ugly fruit. And um, maybe learning about Vietnam and mm. getting back into that gives you an opportunity to sort of have a better position to understand what's going on. How do you balance that? That long, I do find that long view comforting, I guess, in some ways. But how do you balance that against, yes, we also need to live right now. We need to be aware of what our government's doing. We need to be engaged with it, et cetera, et cetera. Frederick Douglass said, agitate, agitate, agitate. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think there's nothing about history that's passive. I don't mm-hmm. think there's anything that says, oh, well, because I know things worked out, I don't have to do anything. This is why 
the Germans really wish they'd done something. I'll tell you that. So I think you have to just um, always be mindful that your obligation is really to the present, and that's all we're doing too. Mm. This is our job, but it's it's all about now. It seems one of the maybe healthy things that came out of the Vietnam experience was the skepticism. Mm. You know, not to have blind faith in our leaders to always be right, but it sort of metastasized mm. into cynicism. Yeah. That they're never right. That they always lie. Mm. That they can't be trusted. And then we sort of don't trust ourselves. And I think if we can kind of unwind or put that toothpaste back in the tube, whatever the right metaphor is to go back to, we need a healthy skepticism. Unring that bell. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> you know, just the skepticism is healthy and cynicism is toxic. Mm. And somehow in there is what, you know, is I think very disturbing to many people that we sort of, the negativity is so dark that it makes people despair that anything can ever get better. And that mm. can't possibly be right. Yeah. And But we can't go back to sort of everything's fine. Mm. And somewhere in there, that's what history, I think, helps no, I us think understand. That, I, I think that she hit the nail on the head right there. Yeah. You yeah, know, that cool. skepticism is healthy and cynicism is toxic. And in the space between that is where we're all obligated, whether we're dealing with the past or dealing in the Twitter moment. Mm-hmm. Um, where we're obligated to actually exert some of our free will mm. to make things better. And yeah. if you don't do that, then you're part of the problem. And if you do do that, you're part of the solution. And, you know, one of the things, it, I was talking to one of the Vietnam veterans who's in the film the other night at a screening, and he was just despairing about how toxic and disturbing things are right now. And, you know, he said, we just need to understand each other. Mm. Because I think coming back from Vietnam, he felt very alienated that people didn't understand him. His family didn't understand him. He didn't understand where they were coming from. And that has kind of also just, you know, accelerated and, and intensified. And he was just thinking that our, our what we need to do as a society is to listen to each other like we've tried to do in this film. And to just, you know, be present and understand if you don't agree with someone politically, why do they feel that way? Mm. You can demonize that person. He happens to be a Mexican-American. And he was talking about, you know, people who voted for our current president who don't think that friends of his or relatives or whatever have the right to be here. Mm. And he could be very angry and upset about that, but his feeling is, I need to understand why do they feel that way? Why are they so alienated from our society? Why are they so angry at people that I know? And, you know, trying to cross those divides is super, super important right now. Oh. It was nice to hear from him, I have to say. Yeah. Well, it's Rodney King, you mm. know? Right, yeah. exactly. Why can't we all get along? Mm. Uh, I'm going to head into the end of the show here, but I, I wanted to ask you just, just a couple more here. Um, which is, you've both been doing this now for, you know, this is your life's work. You've been doing this a while. Are there topics in American history you feel like you don't want to tackle, either because others have done them or you just don't, it's not interesting or something like that? Nope. (laughs) Nope. Nope. I mean, we are already planning our lives out to 2030. God and funding willing. I was going to say, you probably have films planned to 2042 and then it was probably not. Well, you know what? I mean, I just, I realize that what we want to do, I can't, we can't possibly do in that time. So it's like you just want more time and you just realize that as much time as you are given, you'd never run out of topics in in American history to do. And we may stray off the reservation here or there, but that's a good thing to do, to just sort of do a non-American topic. Um, But it's, you know, we feel extraordinarily... Uh, privilege to be able to sort of um, tend to this field. Mm. And uh, no, there's nothing, nothing, yeah. nothing. Mm. So, mm. 
Uh, well, I'm going to, we end every podcast by asking our guests some of the same questions. So uh, I will give each of you one of them and then you'll both get to answer. This is the lightning round. Okay. I'll start with you, Lynn. <laughs> okay. uh, what is the last like book you've read, movie you've watched, something cultural or artistic that you've consumed and what did you think of it? Mm, wow. The last cultural thing that I've consumed. I, oh, it's been so busy. Um, I'm reading a book called Commonwealth right now by Ann Patchett, oh, yeah. which I think is really powerful. Mm, the way yeah. that she um, intertwines so many different generations and different cultural moments. Mm-hmm. And it's so internal to the characters. Mm-hmm. And they're struggling with such basic human questions about connection and family. And it's family kind of torn apart across the country. Mm-hmm. And um, it's resonating with me at the moment quite a lot, given yeah. I think where we are as a society. Yeah, for sure. Ken, who's the filmmaker you've learned the most from that you've never met? That I've never met, Akira Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. What, what, what about him works for you? Uh, just about everything he ever did. <laughs> and Luis Bunuel and a few other people. But, um, you know, it's funny. We tend to make a big division between documentaries and feature films. But the same laws of storytelling apply. Mm-hmm. The, sta- the same poetics, Aristotle's poetics apply to everybody. We just can't make stuff up and they can. But I, I've never been so sort of completely blown away mm. by filmmaking as I have been by Kurosawa and Bunuel. Yeah, yeah. And finally, um, I will ask, what is your one favorite film for each of you? What's what's your favorite, one you keep coming back to, one that you really love to watch? I think my Desert Island movie would be The Godfather. Oh, yeah. I will yeah. never, ever get tired of watching it. It never gets boring, yeah. even though I know every line and every <laughs> single shot. I see nuances in the storytelling and the art and the performances and the deeper questions and the editing, the music, everything. It's To me, it's a perfect movie. Mm. And I honestly, I would never, ever get tired of watching it. Mm. Great. The Seven Samurai by Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> um, and, then, and then, you know, we've got to go to the mattresses. Yeah. <laughs> Great, great. Well, thank you so much for stopping by the show. Um, you can watch the Vietnam War on PBS, or you can go to pbs.org. It will be streaming there. Uh, I believe that you'll get advanced access to some episodes. If you go right now, if you're listening to this in the far future, then you'll find it somewhere, I'm sure. Thank you very much, Ken and Lynn, for dropping by. Thank you, Todd. Thank you so much. I Think You're Interesting is hosted and executive produced by Todd Vanderwerf, in case you hadn't guessed. That's me. Vox Podcasting is headed up by Marty Moe and Jackie Goldstein. Our executive producer of audio is Nishat Kurwa. Our sound designer is Miles Ewell. Our logo design is by Victor Ware, Crystal Stevens, and Georgia Cowley. Our production manager is Alex Allreg. Our production coordinator is Paige Bethman. Audio engineering and post-production are thanks to P3 Post. We recorded this week's episode at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, California. Our editor is Peter Leonard. Our recording engineer is Che Brooks. You can rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And we would very much appreciate it if you did, whether that's Apple Podcasts, whether that's Stitcher, whether that's some other app entirely. It helps us climb the charts. It helps us get great guests. It helps us do any number of things. We're going to be back next week with another person from the world of arts and entertainment, somebody who I think is pretty interesting. But until then, remind me to just memorize these credits. Hey, thanks again for tuning in to I Think You're Interesting. And I want to take this moment to insert a shameless, well, very proud plug for our parent company, 
Vox Media. Vox Media is the fastest growing modern media company. It's known for its standard technology and its high fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at Vox. It's what allows us to go deeper into the topics you, our listeners, care about most. For for a lot of Vox readers, that's politics. For some of you, thank goodness, it's pop culture. But for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether that's SB Nation, which tells the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, and what to disrupt next. And I also love Eater. I go there all the time to figure out where I'm going to eat next. It's it's a great resource for anybody who's into going out to eat as, as much as I am. What unites all of these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality because we believe in the power of going deeper and because we believe in the best of our audiences. 